we come to a conclusion today, a conclusion of sorts. Luke obviously isn't finished with his gospel narrative, and we aren't nearly finished with it ourselves. But there is a conclusion of sorts happening. He is closing out the first kind of synopsis of what he's been doing, the first kind of description of what he's been doing. For for Luke, these first two chapters are foundational. So we most often refer to the first two chapters of Luke around Christmas, around the holidays, and we recite them to one another, we read them to one another as a story of events of what happened. But for Luke, it seems it's less about retelling a story and more about laying a foundation for all that is to come. He has been working for, for to demonstrate who Jesus is and why Jesus was born. He's trying to help us understand his identity and purpose. Now, <clears throat> I mean, everything he's done to this point is that way. Even John the Baptist, if you think about even John the Baptist taking time to talk about his miraculous birth, even that was designed and intended not to point out John the Baptist, but to show how Jesus was the fulfillment of hundreds of years old prophecy that Jesus was the answer to that and that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised hundreds of years previous. You see, if Theophilus, who is the intended recipient of Luke's gospel, if Theophilus is going to be confident, if he's going to be certain in the things that that he has learned, that he has been taught, and if we are going to be confident in these things, we must know. We must know that this child that was born to Mary was God. This, This child that was born to Mary is God. That's really what our study has been about. That's what our study will be about today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 39 through 52. I'd love for you to turn there. If you have the Version app on your phone, find us and follow along with the notes. There's going to be a number of quotes that I put in that outline that you can take home and you can consider uh, later. But it would be, I think, beneficial. I think it would be helpful for you. And today as we study, it's not going to be the witness of prophets from 400 or even 700 years previous. It's not going to be their witness or their explanation of who Jesus was. It's not going to be the explanation or the witness or the testimony of an old couple who couldn't have children. Remember Zachariah and Elizabeth, they couldn't get pregnant and miraculously they were made to have a baby. She was old beyond childbearing years and yet God still enabled her to conceive and they had a baby. His name was John. It was not going to be John. Even in the womb, John was testifying who Jesus was. It's not going to be John testifying. It's not going to be Mary, a young virgin. It's not going to be Joseph, her betrothed. It's not going to be Simeon and Anna, who we spoke of last week, or the angels and the and the shepherds that we studied around Christmas. It's not going to be any of them bearing witness to who Jesus is. Today, we get the opportunity to hear from Him Himself, from Jesus Himself. The very first the very first words that, that are ever recorded of him speaking, today those are the words that we're going to study. And it's important, I think, that we recognize that the very first words that ever were recorded that Jesus spoke, spoke of his identity. It spoke of the fact that he is God the Son sent to do the work of God the Father. That's what he's telling us. And that's ultimately why I believe Luke recorded this portion of Scripture. There's any number of stories I, I guess he probably could have told. Any number of things that could have been re- re- recounted of Jesus' life before his public ministry, after his, after his birth. But, but this one in specific, it fits his purpose to help us see who Jesus was and who Jesus and what Jesus came 
to do. So read with me, if you will. We'll stop along the way. It's a long passage. We'll stop along the way, build out context and things like that. Beginning in verse um, 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now we're just going to stop and get some context and, and, and really get a grasp of what's happening. Last week we studied Jesus had been brought to the temple. Mary had a responsibility under the law to go to the temple 40 days after Jesus' birth and, and, and complete the rites of purification. It was required for her to do that. The second thing that they went to do was to consecrate Jesus. They could have redeemed him. They could have paid a price for him and redeemed him from God, but rather they, they consecrated. We think they consecrated him to God, committing him to God's service. And, and, and so they brought Jesus with them to present him in the temple as one who is going to give his life in service of God. And, and, and they did that, 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 uh, that process. They filled out that tradition. They completed that work. And when it, when it was done, when they were completed with it, they, they returned home. Now, we don't know very much about Jesus' life after he's born. We know very little of it, in fact. Matthew, if you go back and read his gospel, Matthew recounts a, a point where wise men came to, to visit Jesus. And we often put the wise men at the, ti- or at, the, at the birth scene, at the nativity scene. We often put the wise men there the night that Jesus was born, but that's probably not true. It happened some point after he was born, and when people study it, they either put it right before verse 39, between verse 38 and 39, or they put it right after verse 39. So he was either, likely what happened was they stayed in Bethlehem until 40 days after Jesus' birth. They went to the temple. They brought Jesus with them. Mary goes through the purification rites. Jesus is consecrated. They see Simeon and Anna, and then they head home. And while they're at home, maybe in Nazareth, that may be where the, the wise men find them. It could, be, could have been in that 40 days while they were waiting to, for, for Mary to be purified. It could have been in that 40 days the wise men find them. From that point, wherever that was, whatever time that was, they get up and they go to Egypt and they stay there in Egypt for a couple of years. And, and, and then they come back to Nazareth again. This is the point where I believe Luke is telling us. He, now they're in Nazareth. They're living and Jesus is growing up. In fact, it says that he is growing and becoming strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God. And it's important we get this because I think, I think that Luke wants us to see something. It's imperative for us to get. Jesus was a kid just like every one of your kids. In fact, he might have cried out just like that baby just cried out. We don't think of Jesus like that, do we? We don't consider him in terms of his humanity often. But it's imperative that we get this. It's imperative that we understand that he didn't take a shortcut. He didn't just all of a sudden, boom, here I'm born and now I'm a man. He had to learn. He had to be taught. He had to learn to crawl. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to run and speak and read and write just like everyone else. Jesus was a person. He was a man. Luke expressly tells us, this is Norville Gildenheis. I don't know, I'm probably tearing that name up. If you know me, I can mispronounce the best and easiest of names. But, but Norville Gildenheis from New International Commentary says this, Luke expressly tells us that the intellectual, moral, and spiritual growth of Jesus as a child 
was just as real as his physical growth. He was completely subject to the ordinary laws of the physical and intellectual development. Now, if you think about this and you think about the the, the breadth of this, that means Jesus, who was here before the world was created, Jesus, who was in existence in the beginning and nothing was created that has been created apart from him, that same Jesus is now subject to the very laws and the very rules of this created order. He is making himself subject to them. He is having to obey them just like every other person. This Jesus, who was God, who knew all things, was limiting himself. John Calvin wrote, There is no impropriety in saying that Christ, who knew all things, was ignorant of something in respect of his perception as a man. Now, if it hadn't been John Calvin using a word about Jesus being ignorant, I probably wouldn't have read it to you. But since it was John Calvin, I felt kind of safe. I'm probably not going to approach Jesus and call him ignorant. You can do that if you'd like. But the point that's being made is that there are things that he didn't know. There's things that he couldn't, that he couldn't at times understand that he was ignorant of them. He hadn't been educated in them. This is one of the profound mysteries of the incarnation. Jesus never, he, he never quit being divine. He never emptied himself of his divine nature. He never quit being God. But when he was born, he was born fully man. It's profound. It's beyond our grasp. It's beyond our, our, our view. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. There were certain things that he did not exercise, certain divine characteristics that he did not exercise. For example, his omnipotence, being all-powerful. Jesus didn't exercise omnipotence, especially in the cradle. Now, he did some pretty amazing things when he was older, once he started his public ministry, turning water to wine. I mean, that's pretty, pretty impressive. Telling the wind to quit blowing and the waves to stop raising. You know, that's pretty impressive. Commanding demons to obey him. That's, that's a lot of power. He, he did these things, but, but, but he limited himself in the exercise of his power. He, he limited himself in the exercise of his presence. He was limited in a bodily form. Jesus is not everywhere at all times in all places because Jesus is completely physically human in a human body. Right now, he's sitting on the throne and his spirit lives in our hearts, but Jesus himself is sitting on the throne on the right hand of God waiting for his return. Jesus is fully human. He he didn't exercise his omniscience that knowing all things. He didn't exercise that. He limited himself in that. He, he, he limited himself. He, he limited his, the exercise of his divine characteristics, but he never became less divine. He was never less God than he'd always had been. He was just as much God as he always had been, and he took on a new nature. And now, in the man Christ resides two natures, one fully God, one fully man. This is the Christian teaching of the incarnation. And it is absolutely imperative to understand if he is going to be the covering or the propitiation of your sin, he must be both. He must be both. (coughs) This is our belief. As as staggering as it might be, this is our belief. Uh, Philip Ryken 
writes in the Reformed Expository, Expository Commentary. These statements stagger the mind. <laughs> yeah, they do. Absolutely. If sometimes we, if we sometimes take the incarnation for granted, it can only be because we have not wrestled with its full implication. What infinite condescension it was for God the Son to become a man with all the limitations of our humanity except for sin. This too is part of what He suffered for our sake. We talk about the suffering of the cross and we need to highlight the suffering of the cross, but He was suffering well before. He suffered. He humbled Himself. He made Himself subject to the world He created by bowing under its rules. He goes on, this too is part of what He suffered for our sake. What gratitude this gives us for the salvation we have in Christ and what encouragement to know that He can sympathize with our weakness. There were things that Jesus had to learn, things He did not understand all at once, even things He had to take on faith. Our Savior understands what it is like to go through all the growing pains of life. You do not have a high priest who doesn't know what you're dealing with. You do not have a Savior who is ignorant of your experience. He knows. He, he experienced them in the same way. In the same way that you have experienced them, He has experienced them except one. He was God. And because He was God, He had no nature of sin. And so as Jesus grew, He was not hindered by the, by the nature of sin that resides in every one of us. And so He didn't suffer the effects of sin. At least not His own. You see, we, we have to understand this. We have to get that this foundational perspective is exactly what all of these people had been bearing witness to. The shepherds, the angels, Elizabeth, Zechariah, John the Baptist from, from the womb. Mary and Joseph hearing from the angels and Mary as she's singing and expressing her worship. These are the witnesses. This is a testimony that Jesus is God in flesh. He is fully God and He is fully man. And that is staggering. But for the Christian, it is imperative that we understand it. And I believe, I believe that's why Luke chose this extraordinary and important event of Jesus' childhood. Because rather than everyone else speaking about Him, He speaks for Himself. Let's pick it back up in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now Luke fast forwards from that time that, that they returned from Jerusalem. He fast forwards from that time that he's growing up in Nazareth to this point where he's 12 years old. And again, here they are on the way to Jerusalem. 
The Passover feast was one of the three feasts in the Jewish history, the Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith that they were all men of adult age 13 and above were expected to participate in. Every Jewish man from around Israel, from around the nation of Judea and Israel, every one of them was expected to show up for the Passover. So just imagine, and, and, and here's the thing, is that the Passover isn't Luke's uh, point in this passage, but it does set the stage for this passage. Just imagine how busy the temple was. Just imagine how busy Jerusalem was. Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of extra people traveling in from all over the region, coming in, all of the vendors out in the streets selling their animals that would be sacrificed, and all of the, all of the families gathering in places so that they could observe the, the dinner and then the week-long feast of weeks that would, that would extend from the Passover festival. All of these things were taking place in this seven, eight days, and, and, and all of these people were there to observe it, and all these people were there to take part of it, and Jesus was just one, one of hundreds of thousands of people. And he's in the midst of this place, and it's time to go. The whole thing is done. And all of these people that traveled in are traveling out. What goes up must come down, right? So what goes in is going to come back out, and they're going to go home. So all of those people traveling back. Now, I know there's not a person in this room that would ever forget or misplace or accidentally leave a kid. Probably never happened to you, right? Probably never happened to anybody you know. And a lot of people look at Mary and Joseph and they begin to think, oh, what terrible parents. They must have, they must not have really cared what was going on. They were, they were, they were not good parents. And, and I think the reality is, is that this is a different time and day than what we live in today, right? I'm not saying it was less dangerous. I'm not saying there was less things going on, less risk for children. I think it was just as prevalent. But we should not impose our perspectives on the way things operate and function based on our experience. And just because we might have a feeling to be a helicopter parent and never let a child out of our sight doesn't mean that every parent feels that way. It's not, it's not Mary's fault. It's not Joseph's fault. In fact, probably what happened was as they began to leave, we know that they were, they were traveling with a group of people. It was very customary that the, the women would, would walk together. They would travel together and the men would travel together. The younger children and all the girls would be with the women and the older boys would be with the men. It's just a custom is the way things function. And so who's to, who, who's, I mean, you think about Jesus. He's 12 years old. He's at that tween stage. He doesn't really fit either place. He's been practicing and, and watching and observing the Passover with his dad, but he's not really a man yet. That won't happen till next year. And so it's easy to see how Mary might assume that he was with Joseph and Joseph might assume that he was with Mary and they don't find out he's missing until that night after they traveled a whole day, some 20 to 25 miles, they get to their place where their, where their relatives and their acquaintances and the caravan that they're traveling with starts to bed down and it's nighttime and they begin to look around and Joseph and Mary and their other, their other children, Jesus' brothers and sisters are there and all of a sudden they realize Jesus isn't there and they begin to look and they find out he's not there anywhere in the camp and just imagine just imagine i mean have you ever lost a kid in a grocery store i can remember a family their their son decided to hide on them right here in this building on a sunday between services and the second service started and the first service was was ending and there's this moment where you're looking for him everywhere you think he might be 
And he's nowhere, and he's not outside, he's not in the trees, he's not, we used to have that stump, that log out in the front that all the kids would kick on and crawl all over, he's not out the stump, and just not there. And it begins to be this moment of anxiety, like, oh, the worst has happened. I think rather than coming down on Mary and Joseph, we ought to recognize that this is not what they planned for. This is not what they prepared for. That, that there was this moment, though, that they realized and out of great parental concern and compassion, they became, became very anxious about their missing child. In fact, so anxious that probably at first light, they, they get up and they begin to head back another 24 to 20 to 25 miles worth of travel to get back. So one day they travel out. One day they travel back. And they get to Jerusalem, and probably it's not the third, it's, it's the third day. By the time it's light enough, by the time it's okay, that they can begin to look for Jesus. And on that third day, they find him in the temple. They, they find him sitting there. <clears throat> Just imagine. You see, it wasn't their negligence. In fact, the way Luke says this, if you, if you look at it, the, the way Luke expresses this, it says, when the feast, this is verse 43, when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy, Jesus, stayed behind. He stayed. He knew his parents were going. He knew that his, see, we, we begin to see this shift in Jesus' life. We begin to see this recognition, this, this shift begin to take place where he is no longer, no longer under the authority of his parents on earth, but we'll see that he begins to live under the authority of his father in heaven. And I think, I think this is where we begin to see why Luke shared this. Because it's at this point that Jesus demonstrates that he knows who he is and he knows why he is. He's no longer someone that is being spoken about. People aren't telling him or telling his parents who he is or what he's come to do. He is going to tell them. He is going to tell us. And Jesus was in the temple. And he was surrounded by the, the teachers. He was among the teachers. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting to consider. I mean, all of these adults sitting around, all of these men who had learned and who, who would have probably like all kind of degrees and credentials that follow their name. They'd like walk around with their, with their list of credentials on a piece of paper so they show, see, but look, I know what I'm talking about, you know, make sure people knew that they could teach, were, had authority to teach. And here's Jesus, this 12 year old boy sitting among them. And it says that everyone was astonished. He wasn't just teaching. He wasn't sitting. He was learning and he was asking questions and he was listening and he was answering questions. But everybody is astonished at the way he's speaking. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a little girl named Brielle. I came across her video several months ago. This little girl named Brielle, she was on the Ellen show. I don't watch Ellen. Don't stone me. I, I mean, I don't care if you watch it or not, but, but I don't have time to watch Ellen, but I did see in somebody's Facebook feed this, Little girl named Brielle that knew, knows all of the periodic elements. Like she can see the, the letters, the initials, and she knows what they are. And she doesn't just know what they are. She can talk to you about them. In fact, it was really funny in the video at one point, she told Ellen how to pronounce one because she mispronounced it. It's pretty, really pretty funny. This girl's three years old. I know what oxygen is and I could probably get nitrogen and hydrogen. Not going to go too much further than that. Three years old, she got it. She gets it. She understands, and it's astonishing, right? 
Or there's, or there's, I can't remember her name. Let me, I wrote it down. Macy Hensley is another girl is same day. I was watching that video and this other, you know, how, how they do it. They got all these other things that you just got to click on. After you watch one, it's like it traps you. There was another girl named Macy Hensley that she knows every one of the U.S. presidents. Now, if you're a good American citizen, you should too. I'm not a good American citizen. She knows them in order and she doesn't just know their names. She knows facts about them. So this girl, is five years old. Astonishing, right? I mean, it's, it would be, it's, it's just astonishing. I mean, you get sucked into that video. You can't believe what you're seeing. Or maybe the little girl named Jackie Evanko, you probably have heard of her. She became famous on America's Got Talent. She blew everybody away with her first audition, her first, her first standing on the stage and, and singing before the judges. She had been chosen by YouTube fans, so people had heard about her. They knew about her. But when she stood in front of the audience and began to sing in front of the judges, they were like blown away. This girl sings at 10 years old. She sings like she's a seasoned opera veteran. I mean, like she knows what she's doing. Like she has been singing all of her life. And the fact is she probably has. It's just not been nearly as long as you would expect it to be. In fact, if you watch her video, if you go and watch it, you go look it up on YouTube. Jackie Ivanko, first audition. You heard it here first. Probably not, but... You go watch it. And as you watch, it's almost like your mind begins to play this trick on you. Like you think she's lip syncing it. Like you're hearing this adult, powerful voice, this beautiful soprano voice, this belting out this beautiful song. I don't even like opera. And she's like, got me, you know? I mean, like, I'm, I want to listen more. I'm just not cultured enough for it. But she's got me astonished that this 10-year-old little girl, in fact, they were so astonished by it. In fact, they, they were so blown away by it that people began to accuse them of, the, of her lip syncing. And so they had to prove it the next night that she truly was the one singing on the, on the results show. They had to stand her up in front of everybody and prove that it was really her voice. Well, that's, the, the thing is, is that this is the kind of astonishment that, that these people were experiencing. They were blown away. This 12-year-old boy sitting among men who had been studying the Scripture and teaching the Scripture for many, many generations are, are, are hearing and, and being answered and, and even learning themselves from some of the things he was saying. And they're astonished at his understanding. They're blown away by it. Now, some people would say that, oh, well, that's Jesus exercising his omniscience. I don't think that's right. In fact, I think it's completely wrong. I think most scholars think that's wrong. Jesus had been raised by faithful parents. I think that's another part of why Luke has done such a big job, such a good job of expressing the fact that his parents, his, his mother and father on earth, Mary and Joseph, had always been about observing the, the, Jewish, test, the Jewish traditions. It was their tradition to go up to Passover. And it appears that they brought their family with them. Mary wasn't required to go. But she would go. And it seems that they did that every year. If they went, you can assume that Jesus went every year. Even though He wasn't required to go until He was 13. Every year they had Him there. He had been probably hearing the Scripture all of His life. He had been being taught in His home. Hearing His Father teach the Scripture, speak about the Scripture around the table, probably hearing his mother talk about the Word of God in their home, around their table. 
This was no inconsistent practice by his parents. This was no, no chance happening. It wasn't like something that, that happened every here and there. This was the, the, the way of life for them. Parents, take notice. A baby who needed to learn. I had parents who set an example. Don't miss this. Consistently set an example in word and in deed. Here's the beautiful thing. is much different than our own children. Jesus didn't have a sin nature that was working against him. And so as he understood it, there was a depth and clarity to his understanding that as he began to express what he knew, people were blown away. They were shocked. And as Mary and Joseph walk into that temple that day, they were astonished as well. Maybe for a different reason. Let's keep reading. We'll pick it up in verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. They were tore up, nervous, scared. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. You see, it was here in the temple among the teachers that Mary and Joseph find Jesus sitting there. And they're astonished also. But I don't think it's astonished because they're hearing his answers. They live with him. Right? They heard the things he spoke about regularly. It was normal for them to sit around their table, to sit in their home, I think, to, to hear Jesus kind of talking about the ways he was perceiving and understanding the scripture. Even at a very young age, at 12 years old, before he was even legally obligated by the law, Jesus is understanding things that are shocking. I think they're shocked and they're astonished because this is where he's at. When you've lost a child in a grocery store, what is that child doing? Crying for mom and daddy. Looking to get reconnected. Not Jesus. He wasn't looking for them. He wasn't frantically trying to find his parents. He wasn't running around with, a, with, with, with no confidence or assurance. He wasn't ridden with anxiety. No. Here he was calmly, clearly talking to the teachers of God. Or teachers of God's Word about God's Word. I think his parents are astonished. In fact, if you, if, if you have ever, if you have ever been on the receiving end of a mom's gaze, this was one of those gazes that you know she means business. Like Mary is like, I don't know how moms do it. I gotta look, but it's like more like mean and there's this, it's not as, it's not the same. You just imagine Mary, you can hear the emotion in her in her response to him and in her words to him you can you can hear her frustration you know that moment where all of that compassion and concern you realize that he meant to do this this is obviously his his plan i can tell you when they found the little boy here and he was hiding under the chairs in the middle of the service the concern for the child that was missing quickly turned you're in trouble boy that's i think what happened and she speaks to him. She speaks to him, exercising authority. Hey, I'm your mom. Listen to me. I, I, I'm in distress. I've been in distress. How could you do this to me? And if you were here last week and you heard Simeon's words, you can refer to it in the passages before. 
Simeon had already promised her that she, a, a sword would pierce her own soul because of who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. She is beginning to get a taste of the Savior's work. See, as the mother of our Savior, she couldn't protect him from the things that had to be done. She couldn't protect him. She couldn't oversee him. She didn't get to control him. She was subject to the fact that the Father in heaven had sent him for a greater purpose than to be her child. She was distressed. Wouldn't you be? If suddenly God demanded the life of your child, your firstborn. But I think it's Jesus' answer that Luke, that is the reason that Luke told this whole story. I think it's the very reason that Luke made sure that this ended up in the pages of Scripture. When Jesus speaks, He tells us all we need to know. Why were you looking for Me? Did you not know that I must be in My Father's house? Nobody understood what He was saying, but but I think through through the benefit of all the teaching that's come, through the life that He lived, the the, the perfect sinless life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, we can begin to see that there is more to Jesus than what was first anticipated. He used the title, the name Father. I must be in my Father's house. Mary had just said to him, and if you compare it to her statement, your Father and I were searching for you. We were in distress. Jesus gently lets her know that His Father wasn't of this world. Is different. It's a contrasting perspective. It's the first time in Scripture that anyone had ever claimed an intimate relationship to that degree to God in heaven. The Jews, and you can see it a dozen or so times in the Old Testament, the Jews often considered God in the, in the perspective of Him being Father, but never intimately, never personally. It was never about my God. It was about our God. Like nationally, He was their Father. And creatively, they considered him the God, the father of all things in the sense that he created all things. But this was the first time that anyone ever demonstrated the tenacity or the audacity to consider or to confess that God was their father. We say this all the time, don't we? We talk about our father in heaven. My God is my father. You are a good, good father. We sing that song. We talk about him being his, uh, our father intimately, personally. That became the reality because of what Jesus said and made possible. You only know him as God, your father, because he was God, the son, or, or God, the father to God, the son. And there were plenty of other people they were saying these things about Jesus. There were plenty of people that were bearing this witness, giving this testimony. But here Jesus, He claims it personally. He says that I must be in my Father's house. Some translations, and if you're familiar with the King James translation, and that's what you grew up reading, you're, you're going to think, oh, I'm used to hearing that my Father's business. And that's the way they translate it. The truth is, the word that's used there typically is not the, house, the, the word that's used for house or the word that's used for business. But literally, if you just read it literally for what it says, it could just as easily read that I must be about my father's things or be about going my father's way. The context obviously kind of lends itself. Here he is in the temple. He's in his father's house. Kind of lends itself to being translated the way that they have. But if that were all that Jesus meant, why would he be leaving? Why would he be up and leaving here in a couple of verses? 
See, I think that Jesus was demonstrating that God, His Father, was the one who determined that He was about what He was about to be doing. Where God, where He saw His Father working, He would join. Where the fa- what the Father was doing, Jesus would do. What the Father commanded, Jesus would obey. We see this transition here at 12 years old. As he begins to recognize, as he begins to learn, as he comes to this understanding, as he's growing in wisdom and in stature, he begins to realize that his parents are not his ultimate authority. His earthly parents aren't the ones that ultimately tell him what he is or who he should be, but his Father in heaven. And as he responds, Jesus is telling them that he has come to know that who he is, his identity. He has come to know what he is to do, his purpose. But no one understood him. It's probably good that no one understood him because as he lived his life, as he did his ministry, and he continued to claim these things, it would eventually be the, the truth, the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the thing that would end him, land him on the cross as his blasphemic words, according to the Jews, that he was the Son of God. See, if I could just sum it up in just one phrase for you. I think this is the reason that, that, that Luke shared this story. Jesus believed He was God the Son come to do the work of God the Father. He believed that. He claimed it Himself. He bore testimony of it Himself. And it's critical for us to know this. It's critical for us knowing the identity and purpose of Christ because until we know the identity and purpose of Christ, we will never understand our own identity and purpose. Until we get that right, everything else will not make sense. Everything else, will lit, we, we will be left in confusion. We will be left wondering. We will be left in this place of distress. We'll be just like all those people standing in the temple not understanding what He said, what He's about, or what He came to do. We have to get this. C.S. Lewis is credited with the trilemma, Lord, liar, or lunatic referring to who Jesus was. Sometimes it's called mad, bad, or good. I don't know which one you might be familiar with it under. But he writes this in Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. So just so you know, this is foolish. Don't go saying it because it sounds foolish. And if you hear somebody saying it, what I'm about to say, well, don't call them foolish, but know that they need to be educated. I'm saying this, that people may often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, that's a lunatic, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. 
We, he, didn't leave us, he didn't leave us room for choice. He didn't leave us room to, to, to determine that, that he's good teacher or, or a prophet of God, but he's not God. He claimed to be God. He believed himself to be the Son of God, come to do the work of God the Father. That's what Jesus believed. Jesus believed he was God the Son, come to do the work of God the Father. Will you believe Jesus? You see, that's where we're at. Will you believe him? If you won't believe anything that anybody says about him, will you believe him? This is his view. It really boils down to two things, essentially two perspectives. He is who he claimed to be or he isn't. What will you believe? Will you believe Jesus, will you trust him? And I'm not talking about believing in him like you might believe in Santa Claus. I'm talking about trusting him with your life. Not not trusting him for some moment in the future when you might die, but trusting him right now in this moment. Will you trust him with your day-to-day life, every day from here until the day you die, that then he has your eternity as well? Will you trust him? Will you trust Him more than you do right now? How will your life look different? Because you do. What in your life is the way it is because you don't trust Jesus being God in flesh? Not just come to make a statement, but come to save us. What would be different if you believed that more? If you believed it more fully, if you trusted it more completely? Jesus believed He was God the Son, come to do the work of God the Father. Will you believe Jesus? And it's beautiful the way this story ends, the way this passage comes to a close. Jesus has just gently rebuked His parents of all things. He could have stayed in the temple. He could have said, hey, my father is in heaven. He could have started his ministry right there. But that's not what Jesus was about ever. Jesus didn't come simply to make a name for himself. He came to glorify God the Father. And so what he does next, I think, is huge. I think it's important. I think it's, it's priceless. See, after everyone's confused about what he's saying and after the, the, they have found him and everybody is, is misunderstanding his words, It says in verse 51, as he humbly submits, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Could have told them how to live. Could have told them what to do. He was growing in stature and wisdom and he was gaining greater insight. In fact, in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He had every right to stand up and command people to bow. But he waited for another 18 years. From the time he's 12 to about the time he's 30, he waits patiently, submitting to the authorities on the earth until the time is right for him to step into the public eye and begin to teach and call people to the kingdom of God. He did this confidently. He did this humbly because he truly believed he was the Son of God come to do the work of God the Father. What are you going to believe about Jesus? What are you going to do with him?
You could write him off. You just dismiss hearing any of these words that I've said. You could dismiss him as crazy, as a devil. Or you could bow to him as Lord and God. Maybe your problem is not so much that you haven't heard these words. Maybe you just don't know what to do. Maybe, how do I find him? How do I, how do I figure this out? How do I myself grow into this? How do I come to believe it? I want to believe it, but how do I believe it? Seek him. Seek him. Seek him where he may be found. His word. Maybe you've never ever in your life open the Scripture yourself. Maybe you've always been listening to what people say about it. Maybe you've always been hearing people talk about it, but never for yourself sat down and read it. Let me encourage you. What a perfect time it is to encourage you at the beginning of this new year. Read His Word. Start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look for Jesus in there. Listen to His testimony. Listen to Him speak. Listen to His words. Seek Him. And come. Every week, come and and read and study the Scripture. Read Luke along with me. Study it. Check my words against what the Scripture says. Check me. Make sure that I'm right. Make sure that I'm uh, uh, representing it correctly. But read the Word that you might know yourself. How fruitful it will be. I mean, we're so quick to turn on uh, 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 Netflix. We're so quick to open our phones and click to Facebook. Why? Because we believe they hold something for us. Because we believe they're going to relax us or let us rest and relax. There is no comfort. There is no peace. There is no security apart from Christ. Seek Christ. You want to know what your life is to be about? You want to know what to do next? Seek Christ. It is only in finding His identity and His purpose that we find our identity and our purpose. Seek Christ. Christ where He may be found in His Word. Luke expresses this for us so that we might know that He is God. Maybe, maybe today you have come to this place and you have heard this Word and you believe, but you want to believe. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Seek Him in His Word. And I... I'm confident you will find him. More mature Christians, now I'm talking about old, I'm talking about mature in your faith. You've, you've been believing longer. Don't stop with the Gospels. Jesus said in John chapter 5, he said, he said to the Pharisees, he's getting on to them actually for studying the Scripture. He's like, you read, the, you read the Scripture to justify yourself, to find life in them when they were given to you that you might find me. I'm the one in whom life is found. Not me, Jesus. That's Him saying that, right? I mean, you get that. He's the one in whom life is found. The Scripture points us to Him that we might find life. Christian, if you've been a believer for years and you have an understanding of God's Word, a a small understanding of God's Word, seek Him in all of His Word. Every bit of it was given to you that you might know Jesus is God and that Jesus came to save you. 
Let me, let me just encourage you to do this. Until you have picked up your Bible, put down every other book, put down every other way of engaging with the world around you, until you have sought Christ out in His Word, let me encourage you to quit seeking anything because those will only ever lead you to distress. Seek Christ in His Word. As you do, I would encourage you to listen to godly teachers and godly speakers who speak of God's Word. Seek Christ where He might be found. Jesus believed He was God the Son come to do the work of God the Father. Will you believe Jesus? How will your life look different when you begin to exercise that faith? What will be different tomorrow from today? Let's pray. Well, Father, we, as mentioned previously, are grateful that You didn't leave us to ourselves, that You sent Your Son as a covering, as an atonement, as a propitiation for our sins, that You sent Jesus, Father, that we might be saved. Jesus, You humbled Yourself, took on flesh. We're grateful for that. God, I admit in my own weakness, in my own struggle, in my own heart, that is difficult. It is difficult to grasp. It is difficult to believe when you begin to think and all the questions that it raises and all the ways that it's, it's, un, it's just not understandable. I'm grateful that you've given me any faith to believe. That you've made me able to at least grasp it, to comprehend it. And I ask now, Father, that if there is one in this room that has never trusted You and Your work through Your Son, Jesus, that Your Spirit, God, would wake them up, would open their eyes, that they might believe Him. That they might trust Him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.